Bible this morning, I invite you to join me in the book of Genesis chapter 25. Genesis chapter 25. We're going to pick up now where we left off several weeks ago in our study of Genesis. And we're coming now to a transition point from the life of Abraham into his son Isaac and beyond Isaac into his son Jacob. And we read here of the account of the birth of Jacob and Esau, but, but more than just a mere history, a record of these two sons of Isaac, Jacob, and Esau, there is representative here of all of humanity. There is a depiction here of the free and sovereign grace of God in Isaac and in Jacob. And so we want to consider that grace together this morning. If you have found your way to Genesis chapter 25, I would invite you to stand with me as we read God's word together. Beginning in verse 12, the word of the Lord says, These are the family records of Abraham's son Ishmael, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's slave, bore to Abraham. These are the names of Ishmael's sons. Their names, according to the family records, are Nebaioth, Ishmael's firstborn, and then Keter, Adbil, Mipsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tima, Jeter, Nafish, and Kedemah. These are Ishmael's sons, and these are their names by their settlements and encampments, twelve leaders of their clans. This is the length of Ishmael's life, 137 years. He took his last breath and died, and was gathered to his people. And they settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt, as you go, down, go toward Asher. He stayed near all his relatives. These are the family records of Isaac, son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took his wife Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel the Aramean from Padan Aram, and sister of Laban the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord was receptive to his prayer, and his wife Rebekah conceived. But the children inside her struggled with each other, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will come from you and be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When her time came to give birth, there were indeed twins in her womb. The first one came out red-looking, covered with hair like a fur coat, and they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out grasping Esau's heel with his hand, so he named him Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when they were born. May God be praised through the reading and preaching of his word. You may be seated. Well, everyone loves a good origin story. When we read a book or we watch a movie that includes an interesting or exciting character, we beg to know where they came from and how they become who they are. Sometimes it's the protagonist of the story, sometimes it's the antagonist, sometimes the hero, sometimes the villain, but any character that really intrigues us as an audience or as a reader, we desire to know his backstory. Why is it? Uh, that he is who he is. What past events shaped our hero into the man he is? What traumatic event broke the antagonist to bring out such evil? Some of today's greatest and well-liked movies have excellent and intriguing origin stories. 
who is Darth Vader? And how is it that he is Luke Skywalker's father? What kind of childhood trauma leads a man to dress up like a bat and fight crime at night? How did eccentric billionaire Tony Stark become Iron Man? How did Harry Potter get his mark on his forehead? How did Bilbo Baggins come to possess the one ring in Lord of the Rings? How did President Snow become the heartless, tyrannical leader of Pan Am? We love to know how these stories started. We love to know their origin. We also love family origin stories. Not long ago, there was a growing fascination with genealogies and ancestries. Perhaps that's continuing on even now, but people really wanted to know, where do they come from? What's the history of my family? Even personally, we love to hear where people come from and what shaped them into the people they are today. How did this couple meet? Why did you choose that job or college major? Why did you move here? I remember being a student at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and some of the questions that I was most commonly asked was, how did you end up at Southern? Why are you going into pastoral ministry? Where did you grow up? And in what kind of church did you grow up? How did you come to know the Lord? You see, origin stories fascinate us. And here in Genesis 25, more than just a mere birth record of the sons of Isaac, Genesis 25 serves as something of an origin story of the people of God. Yes, they have their beginnings in Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant. Even beyond that, they can trace their history through Noah and the sons of Noah. With the birth of Seth in Genesis 4, there's a people who begin to call upon the name of the Lord. And perhaps we could even say that the entire book of Genesis is an origin story. And the people of God can trace their lineage back to Adam. And yet, there is a very real sense in which God's people, the Israelites, have their beginning with the birth of Jacob, who will later be named Israel. They're not called the Abrahamites after all, but they are called the Israelites. Here in Genesis 25, this is the story that Moses records for the people of Israel as they're leaving Egypt in the Exodus and preparing to enter the promised land so that they remember who they are and how they got their namesake. When Israel considered who they were, Genesis 25 stands out as an identity-shaping event. It stands out as a significant part of their origin story. But this isn't just the origin story of the old covenant people of God. This is part of the origin story of all God's people for all time. All of true Israel can trace their spiritual heritage back here to Genesis 25 because Jacob's story and Israel's story is our faith story as well. It is the story of God's power and grace at work in the lives of undeserving sinners. Amid our shortcomings and our inadequacies, God's power and grace is at work. Amid our human failure and our weaknesses and our inability, God's power and His grace is at work. Amid human impossibilities, God's power and grace is at work. Among family conflict, sibling rivalries, or even parental favoritism, the power and grace of God is at work. 
And amid our greatest triumphs of faith or our darkest hours of sorrow, God's power and grace is at work. The same power and grace of God at work in the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the same power and grace at work in us and in all of God's people for all time. And so as we consider the origin story of the people of God and God's power and grace at work among them, there's two things that I want us to learn from this passage this morning. And first, I want us to see that God creates His people by His sovereign power. God creates His people by His sovereign power. Now, naturally speaking, this is true of Everyone, God creates all people just as he creates everything. But there's something of an appeal here, a recognition that God who created everything out of nothing gives life to every single human being. And it's no different here for Isaac or for Ishmael or for Esau or for Jacob. God shows his creative power, his sovereign power in giving life to humanity. But God further demonstrates his creative and life-giving power in a unique way among his covenant people. We see this in Isaac. You see, rather than beginning with Jacob, who will later be named Israel, this section actually begins with Isaac, who is the son of Abraham. This begins for us a new section in the book of Genesis, but it's important to note that Isaac is at the forefront to begin with. This new section is marked off here by verse 19. These are the family records of Isaac, son of Abraham. That phrase, family records, or the generations of Isaac, is a phrase that we've seen, uh, I think, seven times previously now in the book of Genesis. And it shows up again here to mark a new section, a new part of Genesis. And it begins actually with Ishmael and with Isaac. There's the generations of Ishmael we read about in verse 12. Before transitioning to Isaac in the covenant line, there's this section to bring closure to the life of Ishmael. It discusses his origin, making sure that we remember that it is Ishmael who is the son of the slave woman Hagar. He is not the son of Sarah, Abraham's first, Abraham's first wife, but he is the son of Hagar. It describes his descendants to us in these seven short verses. It, while it may seem like this is a departure from the main narrative of Genesis, this genealogy is actually here to remind us of a few things. First, it's here to remind us of God's faithfulness. You see, there was a promise that was made about Ishmael all the way back in Genesis chapter 17 that we've not yet received closure to. In Genesis 17, God said of Ishmael, As for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will certainly bless him. I will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He will father twelve tribal leaders, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will confirm my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this time next year. And indeed, we read here that he is multiplied greatly. He does become the father of 12 tribal or clan leaders. He's made into a great nation. This shows us God's faithfulness to keep his promises, even regarding Ishmael, who is not of the covenant line, the covenant seed. Another prophecy or prediction that God fulfills is in verse 18. We read in Genesis 16 as God gives the name Ishmael to him. 
It says, this man will be like a wild donkey. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. He will settle near all his relatives. Well, again, in verse 18, we read that he does indeed stay near all of his relatives. And so God is good to Ishmael. He shows him common grace. He blesses him with length of years. He dies at a good old age of 137. And then it says he's gathered to his people. After showing all of God's faithfulness to Ishmael, we are reminded here that he, like Abraham before him, is gathered to his people. He has uh, fulfilled his purposes in this life and he dies. Now with this phrase gathered to his people, we saw in uh, verses 1 through 11 that there was some illusion there beyond the grave. This doesn't mean that he was buried among his ancestors in some sort of communal grave, but that there was uh, an illusion of a life after death in which Abraham was going to be with his people, to be with the faithful. The problem with Ishmael is we can't say for sure to whom he was gathered. There are some who say that it's suggestive that Ishmael himself embraced the promises given to Isaac and to Abraham, that he himself were, was saved, that he embraced in, by faith those promises, and perhaps he indeed did. In this case, this means that he was gathered to his people, Abraham being his people, that he is gathered to the faithful. I trust that that might be true, but it's also perhaps even uh, equally or more likely that this, uh, given his genealogy that describes him as a son of Hagar, which is contrasting him with Isaac, the son of the promise, the son of Sarah, that Ishmael was gathered to unbelievers in his death. But regardless, he is gathered to his people. But there's a second reason uh, beyond the faithfulness of God that this genealogy exists, and that's to contrast with Isaac, whom we've already mentioned, to contrast their mothers, one being born of Hagar, one being born of Sarah, to contrast their covenant relationship with God, Ishmael being a child of, uh, being away from, sent away from God and his promises, and the other in covenant relationship with God, and to contrast their origins. This reminds us that it was Abraham who by his own strength, by his own flesh, sired a child with Hagar. But it was Isaac who was given as a special sovereign gift of God. And so in this genealogy that shows the power of God and the faithfulness of God, if he is faithful to fulfill even these minor promises made to Ishmael, how much more will he be faithful to fulfill the greater promises made to Isaac? And that's really the main purpose of those few verses on, on the genealogy of Ishmael is to, is to contrast with that of Isaac. Because Isaac is the chosen offspring of Abraham. He carries the covenant promise and the covenant blessing. We read in Genesis 25 verse 11 a few weeks ago. After Abraham's death, God blessed his son Isaac, who lived near Beer Lahai Roi. So Isaac is recorded here. His family record is recorded for us here. But it begins, interestingly, with Abraham. The repetition of Abraham emphasizes that it is Isaac who is the covenant head and the elect son, but it also reminds us of his origin. It is Isaac, who is the son of promise, who will be made into a great nation, who will inherit the land, whose offspring will be a blessing to the nation. 
hands. And we're reminded that he was had, there, there was great difficulty in conceiving Isaac. For 25 years, Abraham and Sarah waited for the birth of Isaac. And God continues to reiterate his promise that there will be an offspring. In Genesis 18, the Lord comes to them and says, Is anything impossible for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will come back to you. And in about a year, she will have a son. So God worked powerfully in the body of Sarah to create that which Abraham by his own flesh and by his own strength was unable to do. God sovereignly created and provided Isaac to Abraham. Isaac himself is a work of God's supernatural sovereign power to give him to Abraham to fulfill his purposes. And well, we learn in verses 20 through 21 that Isaac would be the same recipient and benefactor of God's grace and power in this way. Verse 20 lets us know that Rebekah was also barren. Verse 21, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. And so we learn here that this new couple, Isaac and Rebekah, have the same struggle that Abraham and Sarah had. Now, this is not the only theme that's going to be repeated in the life of Isaac. He will experience some of the same trials that Abraham experienced. He will fail in some of the same ways that Abraham failed. He will have some of the same conflicts that Abraham had. But most importantly, he carries the same promise that Abraham carried. Through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through your offspring they will be blessed and this comment about Rebecca's barrenness alludes back to that struggle that Abraham and Sarah had that was the story of Genesis that we've covered for the past nearly 10 chapters Abraham and Sarah are waiting for a promised son but unable to conceive they wait for 25 years and in the midst of that they commit sin by having a child with Hagar But in spite of their struggle and their shortcomings, God provided a child in Isaac. But it seems that Isaac, by the power and grace of God, learned some lessons from the failure of his father. He learns from the faithless acts of his father to take Hagar and to have a child with her. No doubt at some point in Isaac's life, he learned how he has a half-brother named Ishmael. And Abraham tells him, it was your mom's idea. But nonetheless, Isaac becomes aware of how it was that Ishmael came about. And he learned the lesson from his father that when God gives a promise, there is no need for us to try to help him out and bring it about by our own power God is able to do what God says he is able to do and so instead of making the same mistake as his father made Isaac looks to the Lord knowing that having a son is key to the fulfillment of God's promises he looks to the Lord rather than pursuing an unbelieving solution it's interesting to note that the word wife is used of Rebecca three times in this just these two short verses emphasizing for us that Isaac is the only patriarch of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that actually remains monogamous, remains having one wife. And so, 
he goes to the Lord in prayer and prays over his wife. Now, as we read Genesis, perhaps reading it quickly, this might seem like a relatively quick process. As if Isaac and Rebekah are married and they try to have a honeymoon baby with no success. And so they find out that Sarah is barren, but they pray and then she immediately conceives a child. It sounds relatively short just over these few verses, but we actually read that Isaac was 40 when he married Rebekah and he's 60 He is 60 years old when Jacob and Esau are born. This did not happen in rapid succession. Isaac come to see that this fulfillment of God's promise would take a miracle of sovereign power. And so instead of taking matters into his own hand as his father did before him, he devotes himself to 20 years of prayer and pleading on behalf of his wife. Now, it's interesting to note that we actually never read in the book of Genesis that Abraham prayed for his wife, Sarah. I'm certain that he did, but we're not told that. Prayer did not mark the decades that he waited for Isaac to be born. However, prayer marks the decades that Isaac waited for God to answer his prayer over his wife. He's depicted here as a man of faith who learned from his father's sins. He believes and trusts in the promise of God for God to provide for him. He prays faithfully, consistently, fervently, and expectantly that God is going to answer the prayer that he has offered on behalf of his wife. How wonderful it is for us to see the spiritual faithfulness and leadership of Isaac in this way. Well, as we think about what this means for us, dear church, let us pray for God's sovereign power in our lives instead of resorting to self-reliance. Whenever we're seeking the face of God, it's so tempting for us to try to take matters into our own hands, or even worse, to just give up on the matter altogether and and forego taking it to God in prayer. But this is a challenge to us, like Isaac, to pray faithfully, fervently, and expectantly and for a long time. Praying for God's blessings upon our lives. Envision with me for a moment Isaac praying over Rebekah for something they both desire and something that God has said is good and according to His will. And day after day, night after night, for 20 years, Isaac prays over his wife, Rebecca, so that they might have a child. Dear men, what sort of blessings might God see fit to bestow upon your family if you committed to this kind of prayer over them? How might you see the power of God in your lives and their lives 20 years from now if you committed to praying daily over your family according to the revealed will of God? Isaac knew God had said, you will have a son, and yet he did not know when or how that was going to happen, but he consistently and faithfully prayed that God would do what he said he would do. Dear men, what might God do in your life and in the lives of your children if you prayed according to God's revealed will in his word in this way? Well, one thing that I think that we ought to pray for not only for our children, but for men and women and everyone abroad, is for spiritual life. Isaac here sets an example 
for us to, to pray for that which God says that He will grant. And Isaac here is wanting natural life. He's wanting a child, an offspring uh, that, he, that is given by God. But we pray for new life. We pray for converts. We pray for those to be changed and made new creations. But this will only be accomplished by the sovereign power of God. We have not the means to change hearts and lives the way God does. Only He can give power to His Word and convert the soul. And so, after the model of Isaac, we ought to pray for God to grant new life to those who do not have it. To grant new life to those who are dead, just as dead as Rebekah's womb, that God would invigorate their souls and grant them new life. How might God see fit to answer that prayer in the lives of lost people that you know? If you were to devote yourselves to 20 years of praying that God might save them see the temptation for us not only personally but as a church is to fall into Abraham's temptation God's way is taking too long God's way isn't working let's find something more practical I believe that the church at large today is falling into this very temptation let's seek to make cultural accommodations let's entice them through worldly means and in doing so to bring people into the church we are actually committing the sin of Abraham with Hagar but we ought to do God's work in God's way and pray that he would bring the results that he promises in his word that he will bring there is only one means of conversion, and that's the sovereign power of God in the life of a sinner. So dear church, let us join together in praying that God would save sinners through our work of gospel ministry. And let us give thanks to Him for spiritual life. Like Isaac and like Jacob, we owe our spiritual existence and life to the power of God. Isn't it said in John chapter 1 that we were born not of natural descent, nor of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. We owe our spiritual life to the power of God. We've been called from death to life, not by our own will, but by God who gives new life and makes new creations. The new birth that you and I have experienced is on par with Sarah and Rebecca giving birth to children in their old age. What is impossible with man is possible with God. And this new life is part of our origin story. You are who you are by the grace and by the power of God who is working to create a people for Himself. God creates His people by His sovereign power. But there's a second thing that I want us to see in this passage, and it's that God elects His people by His sovereign grace. We've seen that God uh, creates a people by His sovereign power, but I want us to see second, God elects a people by His sovereign grace. In answer to Isaac's prayer, Rebecca discovers that she's indeed pregnant with twins. And it's said that they are struggling within her, which means that they're actually crushing one another, colliding with one another, smashing against one another. You know, one of the most exciting things in the time of a, a mom and even a new dad's life is the first time that you feel the baby kick and there's motion and dad's able to put hand on mom's tummy and feel the new life that is moving around. 
But here, Rebekah feels nothing of the sort. They're duking it out in the womb. These two nations, Jacob and Esau, are fighting, warring against one another. I wouldn't want to put my hand on that tummy, I don't think. But so they are warring against one another, which, by the way, is indicative of what Jacob's life is going to be like. It's going to be marked by this conflict. And so Rebecca is alarmed by this, and she goes to inquire of the Lord, why is this happening? Is, are the babies okay? Are they going to survive? Am I going to survive? She inquires of the Lord. Perhaps this is through personal prayer. Isaac is a man of prayer. Perhaps they join in prayer together, and the Lord reveals this to her. Abraham is described as a prophet, so perhaps they go to Abraham, who is probably and definitely still alive at this point. Uh, we don't know exactly how they receive this oracle from the Lord, but they go to inquire of the Lord, and God answers. And they receive some information. It says that these boys represent two nations. There are two nations in your womb. There are two peoples who will come from you and be separated this introduces this theme of conflict in Jacob's life. There's going to be perpetual conflict as he wars against his brother and against others. Why is there two nations in her womb? Why does this conflict exist? Well, it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. If you remember after the fall, we read of God's uh, judgment upon the serpent and in his judgment in cursing the serpent there was this promise of hostility hostility between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent between her offspring and his offspring and he will crush your heel you will crush his heel but he will crush your head there are these two humanities, two peoples that are at enmity with one another. There's the line of the elect and there's the line of unbelief. There's the people of God and the offspring of the serpent and they're at war with one another. But this we learned in Genesis 3 was by God's grace that there could not be friendship among them because there was no agreement among them. There would not be wrongful or inordinate peace between them this conflict is represented here in Rebecca's womb as one son would be a child of faith and the other would be a child of unbelief this conflict of Genesis 3:15 is worked out in Genesis 25 in these two sons they're crushing one another just as Genesis 3.15 says, and these two sons and their nations are separated throughout history and they will war against one another. But the younger, one will be stronger than the other, it says, and the older will serve the younger. And contrary to expectation, the younger will prevail over the older. God is doing a sovereign reversal of how things ordinarily would be. In this culture, the firstborn would have more rights than the other children. He would inherit more than the other children. He would be the one who would become the next patriarch. He was considered most important in the family. And God turns this upside down and says the younger will serve the older. Excuse me. The older will serve the younger. God has rejected Esau and chosen Jacob. There's a ch just as there is a choice between Isaac and Ishmael, there is a choice between Jacob and Esau. 
History will confirm that God has spoken truly here in Exodus and 2 Samuel and 1 Kings. There is this ongoing tension, strife, and war between the people of Israel, the offspring of Jacob, and the people of Edom, the offspring of Esau. So it comes to pass that these boys are born. The first one comes out and he has a reddish looking complexion and he's very hairy. He's named accordingly, Esau. And then there's Jacob. Just as Esau is coming forth from the womb, Jacob reaches out and grabs him by the heel. And this isn't a fraternal affection as if, hey, don't leave me here, I want to come with you. This is one of, there's no way you're going to be first. I'm going to be first if anybody. He's grabbing after his heel in in treachery and in deception and in opportunism. His name, Jacob, conveys that he will be a schemer. And just as the oracle of God states, it comes to pass that the older will indeed serve the younger. But there's a greater reality at play within this passage, and that's of God's sovereign election. We look at a passage like this and we recognize that God did not choose Jacob and give the covenant blessing to Jacob because he has firstborn status. He didn't. He shows mercy to Jacob, uh, though it was undeserving. God chose Jacob in a way that he did not choose Esau. But this is true of all of the patriarchs. Abraham was chosen out of the land of Ur for all of the idolaters that lived in Ur. It was Abraham who was chosen and brought out and given a land and a promise by God. It is Isaac who was born of the promise of God, not Ishmael. And here it is Jacob who is given the sovereign choice. The blessing goes to the one who had no claim on it. He wasn't chosen because he was firstborn. He wasn't chosen because he was morally superior or better looking or smarter or more godly. God chose Jacob so that his purposes of election would continue. So that God's purposes of grace to take a blessing to the nations might continue. God chose Jacob to accomplish what God was wanting to accomplish. Some people look at this passage and think, poor Esau, you know, Uh, poor Esau who was supposed to be in line for the blessing and yet we will find in the next passage that Esau rejected it. It's not here that God uh, treats Esau unjustly. Esau receives justice. Esau was born a sinner. He was born a child of Adam and he indeed deserves justice, but God grants mercy to Jacob. The question is not how could God pass over Esau, but how in the world could he set his love and affection on Jacob and choose him? This reaffirms for us that there are indeed two humanities in the world. Even among the sons of the patriarch Isaac, there will be one who will believe and one who will live in unbelief. And this was said about them before they were ever born. Their destinies proclaimed and predicted and predestined by God. And so we see that salvation ultimately depends on the sovereign choosing of God. And so this, this passage, Genesis 25, is actually used by the Apostle Paul to flesh out and explain the doctrine of election and predestination in Romans chapter 9. Leading up to Romans chapter 9, Paul has been expressing a salvation by grace alone through faith alone. That justification comes purely and only by faith. He appeals to Abraham in that. 
And then in Romans chapter 8, he begins assuring us that we can have salvation, not because of our works and not because of our good deeds, but because there is no condemnation for the one who is in Christ Jesus. And in Romans chapter 9, that then raises this objection. Has God's promises failed? Has his purposes and his plans failed? After all, Israel is the people of God. They're the ones who have the covenants. They're the ones who have the patriarchs. They're the ones who have the temple and its worships and all of those things. And so the objection comes, has God been unfaithful? Has his promises failed? And Paul says, absolutely not. God's promises have not failed. But it's not because of who He has chosen. It's because there are those who are in Israel naturally that are not of true Israel. God's grace comes to whom He wills it to go. And he appeals first to the account of Ishmael and Isaac. That one is chosen and one is passed over. But one might read that account and say, well, Ishmael, he was born of a slave. He wasn't actually truly the heir to the promise. And so Paul moves on to... Jacob, and Esau. And if either of them have right to the promise, it's Esau. He was the firstborn. And Paul tells us in Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 12, verse 11, For through her, though her sons had not been born, yet are done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to election might stand, not from works, but from the one who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. Paul says it's not according to works. And that word works there is used broadly to refer to who he is, his status as a person, but also the things that he would do. There is nothing that either of them have done to deserve God's purpose of election. And yet, he loves and sets his affection and his purposes and his plans on Jacob, and he passes over Esau. And Esau receives justice. Is there then any injustice with God? He goes on to say in verse 14, absolutely not. For he tells Moses, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it does not depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. When Paul appeals to these passages in Romans chapter 9, it is clear that he is not making a case just based on natural Israel and their election. It's clear that he's not make, making, making a case based on is Esau or in Jacob and their rights within the family. It is clear that he is appealing to this passage to explain God's sovereign grace in election. That God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. Someone has to be sovereign and in control of salvation. And Paul clearly articulates that it is God alone. And again, there's the protest. Is this fair? Well, no, it's absolutely not fair. But fair means all of us end up in hell apart from God. Fair means when Adam fell in the garden that there was no promise of Genesis 3.15. There was only condemnation. Fair means that there is no hope of the gospel and reconciliation to God in Jesus Christ. But what God promises is mercy. He will have mercy on whom He will have mercy. 
There is mercy and grace that comes from God and He chooses to grant that mercy to some and to pass over others. Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. God's grace depends on His sovereign choice and His eternal decrees for His sovereign purposes. And so as we come to a passage like this that obviously is somewhat of a controversial passage, one that is uh, neglected, one that is denied, as we think about how this applies to us, first of all, it means to believe in and proclaim God's free grace in election. Dear brothers and sisters, God's free grace granted to us in Christ is a good thing. God's mercy to sinners is a good thing. God choosing before the foundations of the world to show mercy to those who otherwise would not choose Him and perish in hell is a good thing. Many Christians would deny this doctrine in an effort to uphold the significance of human free will. Dear brothers and sisters, the election of God, the choice of God, does not undermine human free will. But what it does do is insist upon the fact that human free will is not preeminent. God's grace is preeminent. The Bible does not teach that after the fall, that man is saved through the exercising of their own free, sovereign will. The Bible, after the fall, teaches that mankind is saved by the free exercising of the grace of God. Not only is predestination and election clearly in the Scriptures, we must believe it. We cannot pass over it. We cannot ignore it in an effort to because we dislike it. This isn't just national. This isn't just about Old Testament Israel. This has everything to do with our personal salvation and God's grace to us. So not only do we believe it, we rejoice in it. We rejoice in God's free grace. Because what this means for you and I, when we consider Jacob and Esau, is that there was in eternity past, before the foundation of the world, a commitment by God to save sinners just like you and I. Before we were ever brought to faith in Christ, before we were ever born, God committed within Himself to save us. But the question that we, ought, that we don't ask is why? We always ask, well, why doesn't God save everybody? Why doesn't God elect everyone? Why doesn't God show His grace to everyone? I don't know. That's within the mind of God and the eternal purposes of God. But the question that we ought to be asking is why would a wretch like me be chosen by God? Why would someone as wicked and evil and rebellious against God and alienated from Him who has broken His law, why would God save me? Why would God show me mercy when all I deserve is justice? And so there is a degree of humility that comes from election. It's so foolish to say that election would cause pride to swell in the hearts of a believer as if I'm chosen by God and I'm now something. The whole point of the doctrine of election is that we are nothing before God. Charles Spurgeon said this, I believe the doctrine of election Because I am quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen Him. And I am sure He chose me before I was born. 
or else he would never have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. And so I am forced to accept that great biblical doctrine. And so, dear church, when we speak of the electing grace of God, we are saying in agreement with Charles Spurgeon that there is no reason within ourselves that God should have chosen us. And if God looked at our lives or some merit in us after our births, He certainly would not have chosen us. He chose us for His own reasons, for His own purposes, to the praise of His glorious grace. Spurgeon goes on to say, There is no more humbling doctrine in Scripture than that of election. None more promoting of gratitude, and consequently, none more sanctifying. Believers should not be afraid of it, but adoringly rejoice in it. Dear church, let us be reminded that we had no more right to mercy than Jacob did. And Esau had no more right to it than Jacob. Humility is built into this doctrine of election because in it we see ourselves for what we are before God. And that is nothing. We are unworthy. We are lowly. But by His grace and for His glory, He chooses to save some to have vessels of mercy to the praise of His glorious grace. Let us rejoice in God's free and sovereign grace. And let us tell others about it. The reason, brothers and sisters, that we ought to evangelize is because we can know with certainty and confidence that God is going to save someone. That He is going to have a people for His namesake from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. And we can go forward with confidence knowing that our labors are not in vain. As we preach and as we pray, God is going to save sinners because He has chosen them before the foundations of the world. And I don't know who they are and you don't know who they are, but God does. And we go and we preach the gospel without exception and without distinction. We proclaim the good news that Jesus saved saves sinners knowing that God will indeed do just that. We evangelize because we believe in the sovereign grace of God. And as we close, maybe you're hearing this and you're not a Christian. And you're thinking to yourself, well, well maybe I'm not chosen. Maybe I have no hope. Maybe I'm just like Esau and I'm cast out and I'm rejected. I don't have faith now and I have no forgiveness of sins and, and perhaps I'm going to be cast away from God rather than brought into Him. Maybe I'm not elect. My counsel to you is to do exactly what Isaac did. To pray. To go to the Lord and cry out. Confess that you are exactly who you recognize yourself to be. Guilty and unworthy. Just as guilty and unworthy as Esau and Jacob both were. I am a sinner before God and worthy of justice alone. But God, please show mercy. Cry out to Him and ask for His mercy and He will show you free grace in Christ. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be Safe. There is a promise of salvation that extends to you if you will cry out and ask God for mercy. Because God has elected a people for Himself by His sovereign grace. This is our origin story. 
This is who we are. God, by His power and by His grace, has saved us and made us new creatures in Christ. He has chosen us before the foundations of the world. He has made us His own, undeserving though we were. God has created us and given us new life. And God has chosen us by His free and sovereign grace. Let us go to Him in prayer and thank Him for this. Lord, as we come to this passage, no doubt a difficult passage and perhaps a difficult doctrine to hear and to believe, Lord, we pray that you would help us. Give us eyes to see it, ears to hear it, and hearts to believe it. And to recognize it as the good news that it is. That you are saving sinners to the praise of your glorious name. Lord, help us to be mindful that there will be and is ongoing hostility in the world between your people and those who are of the offspring of the serpent. Lord, let us, let us face those trials and those challenges with faithfulness and obedience. And let us rest in you. Rest in the promise of salvation. Rest in your goodness towards us. And Father, may we proclaim to all we know that there is salvation in Christ. That there is grace, abundant grace at the cross to all who would receive it. In Jesus' name, amen.